Okay, hi, John. Hey, what's up? You have Nothing. you have a ceiling of fluorescent lights behind you. Is that your apartment or an office? Is that that's my apartment? Yeah. That's the kitchen. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, it's my poet residence. <laughs> Are you uh, the spot you're podcasting from? Is the is that the spot where you uh, write your poems and essays? No, see, because like my apartment came furnished with like. These are the chairs they gave me. <laughs> it's big, they're, though. They're basically stools, so not this spot. Right. Um, Stool boom, you know, waiting for Guffman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you eating? Cheese. Oh, man. It I looks, had to eat something. It looks like cheese that um that was let, like leftover cheese from a reception that you swiped on the way out at an art gallery. No, that's not what the cheese is. It's <laughs> my boyfriend came up and made us pizza, so it's like mozzarella. Oh, nice! Some mozzarella. Oh yeah, I saw that. I saw that pizza on uh, Twitter or Tumblr or something. But uh, this is actually this is actually topical. We can actually pretend this is a real food podcast, <laughs> and you can talk about your pizza recipe. Oh, it's topical about. I was like, what's going on? Not in the news about pizza that I've missed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, I got my finger on the pulse <laughs> eating pizza. So Chris made you pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we made like, I mean, I didn't help make it, but it was, we just used like, there's like a Pillsbury crust that comes in one of those little tubes. Yeah. They go like that. Uh, and then we also used one that was more like a cooked, not frozen pizza crust that you just put stuff on top of, put in the fr- oven. And the one that we, you just put stuff on top of was way, way better than the Pillsbury crust and way really? easier. So that's a tip for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's worth it. It was really good. Do you have a, um, what is this, what surface do you put the pizza on? Like, do you, um, like a, we don't have, I don't have nothing fancy in my kitchen. Just like, you know, a pan. A pan. <laughs> Some, like if I just make a frozen pizza, I usually just stick it right on the, whatever yeah. you even call it. Yeah, yeah, grate right on the, yeah, on the grate, yeah. Or the no rack, not, rack, the rack. Yeah, I think that actually frozen pizzas. That's now, um, that's now commonly right there on the instructions. It tells you to. It tells you to stick yeah. it directly on the rack. So the underside gets cooked. That's good. Right. But years ago, my mother gave me a pizza stone, which I at first uh, like regarded as a, one of those kind of fussy kitchen implements that you will never actually use. Like one of those like uh, those like a wine bottle stopper things. Like first of all, <laughs> as you know – as if the cork isn't good enough, or second of all, as if anyone's going to open a bottle of wine and not drink the entire thing. And not thing. finish it. That's I remember Molly had one, and she was like, I'm not going to use this. No, <laughs> I'll just no. drink the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to uh, leave that wine lying around. So anyway, uh, but then, you know, it took me years to actually use the thing, and it's spectacular. You just heat it up ahead of time, and it's nice and hot, but it's kind of porous, so the crust gets really crispy. Yeah, Throw that a seems like meal in there. 
That seems like one of those kitchen implements that people who like to buy kitchen implements like to buy. Yeah. Pizza stone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're <laughs> they're right. Very, they're like, oh, a pizza stone. You know, like I had a roommate who had all kinds of foofy kitchen stuff, and that was one thing he had, a pizza stone. Yeah. Well, I was I, like, I have a bowl. The other, the, on a related topic, do you, um, do you know, I mean, there's lots of, uh, uh, I know lots of people have that, uh, rabbit wine opener, you know, the one that's advertised in the sidebar ads in the New Yorker, it's shaped like a rabbit and you kind of stick the, I don't even know how it works. This East coast. It's not wine opener. It's not better. Than the, than the waiter one, you know, the one that the one that yeah. every waiter or waitress carries around in a restaurant. With a little knife. Yeah, and then you just you just you know you uh, screw it in. You put the little the thing down. You pull up. Nothing is faster or more efficient than that, in my view. Does have you ever had a waiter who was unable to use one of those and made you very nervous? No, <laughs> I have no. several times. <laughs> you haven't been that waiter, have you? No, I've oh, never worked at a place that sold alcohol. Yeah. My friend Emma worked at Cafe Dolce in Missoula, which is like, you know, a semi-fancy wine bar-ish place. Yeah. It's not really I've, a wine bar, but it has wine. I've and, eaten there a, a few times. And they were all very, they were very like, you know, official about their wine service and uh, you know, like you show the person the wine and you... <laughs> You know, pour a little bit. They say yes or no. You have to stand on one side or the other of the person, you know. And um, so she had a party uh, at her house when she first got hired there for all of, you know, her pals where she provided the wine and just practiced opening the wine for us (laughs) and like showed it to us, asked if it was okay. But like mostly it was just using the wine opener and actually opening it in a swift manner. Yeah. Um, which was great. People should do that for me more often. They should. They should. It was fun. Did you that was so, so you had to drink a lot of wine in order to help her? Yeah. She made me. <laughs> but the I remember too being like because you know, it's the thing where waiters have to they show the head of the table the wine and yeah. let them pour it and say, is that okay? And I was like, is, is that just like a gender studies minefield for you? <laughs> and she was like, yes, <laughs> because it's, all, it's a temptation to show the oldest male at the table, the wine. Yeah. And I feel like I've, I've wondered about this actually, because I've worked food service, but never, I've never been a waiter. Like I've never been in a table service place. You know, I live, I've worked at sandwich shops and coffee shops, actually just one, which was both. And um, I've often wondered about this kind of, you know, you, you're you're asked to do a certain amount of mind reading. You know, who who looks like the person who's about to pay? And yeah. once you've once you've freed yourself from the notion that that's always the dude, are there are there cues? You know, are there like facial tics? Or are there ways of of exchanging glances with people that indicate who is supposed to pay? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I feel like when I waited tables, I often just wanted to give the man the check. And that wouldn't be a thing. It wouldn't be like if you asked me who who to give the check to, I'd be like, oh, the man. But there's a some sort of cultural intuition that makes me be like, he's the one. 
who's going to pay. Were you a good waiter? Actually, I guess that you were a good one for me. But I think the day after I met you, you inadvertently, I became my uh, waitress at the Catalyst. That's right. I served you several times. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm pretty fast. Yeah. Relatively. And I would say I'm not overly neat or (laughs) accurate, but... I'm pretty fast, and right. I'm relatively pleasant. Not the most pleasant, but certainly not the least. I'm actually, not the one who's like, hi, like super smiley, but I won't be like rude. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think I think I I think I might value I might value speed and relative friendliness over uh, per- perfect accuracy. I, I yeah. often have I, here's the thing here's the biggest mis- the mo- the most common mistake that gets made when I'm at a restaurant if it's a restaurant that has margaritas I will often have a margarita and I don't like salt on my margarita and Rian does like salt on her margarita so we usually order one with and one without and we usually order different margaritas so if there's going to be an error it's going to be there because I have to be the freak who doesn't want salt on his margarita right well and the person who's making them is just autopilot yeah. to put them in the salt, make the margarita. Yeah. The other thing is that, that, that putting it in the salt, I mean, I haven't done it. I haven't been a bartender, but um, it looks really fun. You dump it in the plate, you know, you, you, you uh, drag the, the, the lime bit, the lime slice around the rim, and then you dunk it on there and it's covered with salt. It's beautiful. And being deprived of doing that must be a bit of a drag. I feel like when I was a barista, when people would ask me to make them decaf, Mm-hmm. coffees, you know, decaf latte or whatever, I would maybe 80% of the time remember to do that and the rest of the time be like, they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone ever call you on it? No. They no. can't tell. No. What, they they're going to call me later? Be like, I'm jittery. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm going to say, you know, call your doctor. <laughs> Could have been any number of things you consumed today. <laughs> And yeah. I don't even remember if I made you one correctly. So I used to. Um, I was I was a bad um, barista, and not because um, not because I didn't make the drinks right, though may- maybe I didn't. But I th- I think because I I probably was unable to conceal my distaste for the things that people ordered. They're heavily <laughs> adulterated drinks, and yeah, because I prefer. You know, I like it either. In those days, I would drink coffee with a little half and half. Now I just drink it black. Um, or sometimes I'll have like a cafe au lait or a cappuccino or something but um the worst part of it was that i would like judge these people for ordering these crazy elaborate super sweet drinks and then on my break sometimes i would make myself one (laughs) (laughs) well if someone's asking you to do it it's always more horrible yeah more annoying that you're for yourself you're like no i mean i just needed one for fun. <laughs> exactly exactly it's a necessary indulgence while these other people man it's just a it's habitual shallowness and messing with me yeah. yeah i mean that's why i always feel like working food service i feel like i value being fast and i value that in my coworkers, where it's like just be fast always be doing something then you'll be fine you know yeah and so i feel like the reason that i am more fast than I am accurate or friendly is because I care more about what my coworkers think of me than my 
<laughs> customers, even yeah. though I mean, you know, tips and whatever, but like, I feel like these are people like I'd rather have a, be esteemed by my coworkers than be esteemed by my customers. customers That's wrong. That's an incorrect. Yeah. But the customers are going to leave. They're going to walk out the door in less than an hour, you know, and your coworkers are still going to be there. Yeah. Glaring at you from the kitchen. So. Yeah. It's are you true. Do, are you doing any? Are you doing any food service right now? Are no, you? I'm poet. Yeah, since sweet, you're back from uh, Idlewild. I'm in Idlewild. Oh, you're in Idlewild now. Yeah, I live there. Are you? Is it? Is your job just for the semester, or are you continuing next semester as well? For the whole year. So how was how was it? You done with this semester? Did you get your grades in? Not done yet. Two uh-huh. more weeks. Well, this week and next week. Are you digging so, it? So, yeah, I mean, it's like they let me do anything I want. So, you know, yeah. with the kids. So, what else can I ask for? I guess <laughs> no, like curriculum or hand wringing about anything. So, I'm good. It's, I mean, it's been good. It's kind of the kids are great. They're really smart. Good writers, like crazy good writers for high schoolers. Yeah. They do funny things and crack me up. Like the other day, I posted it on Instagram, but like uh, we had like a little reflective time to write about um, the these kids who are not majors. They're not creative writing majors, uh, but we teach this class where they, you know, can dip their toe in or whatever. Uh, about their first experience workshopping. And so it was like, you know, what was helpful, what was challenging, whatever. And in the end, I said, you know, what would you do differently for next workshop? And kids wrote, like, I would turn in something different. I would, you know, whatever. And this one kid wrote, I would not laugh while my poem was being discussed. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, good luck, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, I I do feel like... uh, for me, course evaluations are often an opportunity for students to. I haven't read this semester's yet, um, but I think I think everybody got along this semester. But there's always, usually, there's a few who are angry at other students, and I <laughs> I miss all this because, like I I you know unless a student is has a severe personality disorder, I pretty much just like them. You know, yeah. because it, in part because it's my job, in part because I'm older than they are and I'm sympathetic to the problems of, you know, being 19 or 20. Um, and also just that's kind of in my nature to find a way to like people. So I so I just assume that it, but, you know, the, my, the error comes as a teacher where I just assume everyone feels about everyone else the way I feel about them. Right. But of course, you don't feel that way about your peers. You hate some of them, and so the and and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to. This is certainly the case with Cornell students. Maybe it's the case with students everywhere. They don't want to like rat out or complain about their classmates because that's annoying. You know, they don't want to use office hours for that. So they wait until they can talk anonymously in the course evaluation, <laughs> and they say something like, you know. Uh, I like this class. Professor Lennon's pretty good, but I wish he—I wish that he would stop certain people from talking so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the I went well in the workshop, like the the workshop for non-majors. You know, we just had our first workshop, and I said. Well, I had them do this reflection, and then I said – I kind of asked for a general, like, you know, very short, like, survey, like a discussion afterward about what could what could be done better, what could I do better. 
And definitely in the class, maybe three people talked 85% of the time out of a class of 10. And I think that's honestly pretty common, like through even through graduate school. But uh, one of them raised their hand and was like, I feel like some people just talked the whole time and other people should talk more. And it was like, why don't you talk less? (laughs) 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 Instead of shaming your other classmates for not being able to get a word in edgewise. But I mean, that's, I found it very funny because the kid had recognized (laughs) that, you know, more people should talk. (laughs) He just (laughs) took away the wrong lesson from that observation. Right. (laughs) When some people are very uncomfortable with silence, they just want to fill it up. I get that. I get that impulse. I I, I definitely get that impulse. This is is why we can do a podcast, actually. Hmm? (laughs) Not just sitting there smiling. (laughs) Exactly. There's no awkward silences. All right, so quick diversion here. I I had put a Facebook post up, and I asked... uh, saying we're going to record this, I said, it's winter, what do you ingest to stay warm when it's cold outside? And we have an answer from um, Brady Thomes, Thomes, T-H-O-M-E-S, says, is this a question about alcohol? Because that'd probably be fireball. Now, if we're talking food, nothing beats a nice warm berry scone. So I'm on board with the scone, but I didn't know what a fireball was. So I Googled, I thought it was like a recipe, you know, like a drink. I was going to find a drink recipe, but it turns out, it's this thing called cinnamon whiskey. It, it's it, not really whiskey, is it? Um, I don't, I don't know what it is. It says it's like a hot, sweet. It's like those candies, the Atomic Fireball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It tastes like that, but in whiskey form, it's like, ugh, it's like very much like what. Um, eighteen-year-old steal from their dad. I would imagine that that is. That is that's accurate because it says if you haven't tried it yet, just imagine what it feels like to stand face to face with a fire breathing dragon who just ate a whiskey barrel full of spicy cinnamon. <laughs> why was why was the spicy cinnamon in the whiskey barrel though? I don't know. I think this is <laughs> this is a copywriting problem. And then it says okay, so there's a fact, you know, you go to the FAQ page. And it says, Dear Fireball Nation, we have more answers to your question. Check them out below. Want to know anything else? Let us know here. Here's the f- the first question on the fact is, is Fireball safe to drink? <laughs> the second Who's emailing one, them? I, I have no idea. I, I would actually, really like to try your whiskey, but I'm afraid it's dangerous. Well, I my theory about this is, like, the second one is somebody said Fireball is made with antifreeze. What was all the noise in the media about? About Fireball. About Fireball. And is there a Fireball recall in North America? I think this is PR. I think this is I think this is a marketing person. That was one of the FAQ. Is there a Fireball recall in North America? Yeah. It says, is there a Fireball <laughs> recall in North America? And the answer, of course, is no, and there won't there be. Like, there, is, no. there is absolutely no reason for any recall. In fact, we started this rumor ourselves. To, no, they didn't say that, but... Um, it's not dangerous. It's just extreme. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Only God. really cool people can drink it. It's dangerous for other kinds of people to drink it, <laughs> like parents. <laughs> oh, my God. 
All right. Well, I won't become one of those parents. Although I'm, I, I can in see- the Union Club in Missoula, often there would be one dollar fireball shots or whatever, and I'd be like, "Ugh, fine, I'll drink ten, <laughs> but I'm not happy about it." <laughs> Just kidding. No, that's no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> that was all a joke. So, um, do you want to um? Do you want to talk about our thing that we're doing? Our project? Our literary thing? Yeah, cuz it's cuz it's out in public now. Yeah. It's it's called Oki Panky. It's a Oki Panky. It's an online literary magazine that is sheltered by the Electric Literature Umbrella, which is to say that stuff that's published in it will also be um be uh reposted on Electric Literature. And it's things that are short Things that are dark, funny, experimental. What other adjectives are appropriate? Um, hot. I think you hit it. I think you hit okay. it. I was going to yeah. say hybrid. I don't even like that word. So I don't even know why I brought it up. So in ostensibly, uh, Rian, my wife, is the fiction editor. Ed's the poetry editor. You are the editor at large, which means nonfiction and other stuff. But really, everyone's kind of doing everything, it seems, so far. Yeah. And we're going to have a collective. party. We're having a party in New York City on uh, January 8th. I'll be there. In Brooklyn. Yeah, this is great. Going to meet your boyfriend. Have you been in New York before? Okay. I've been there, but not since I was 20. Yeah. So I haven't been there as an of age person. <laughs> I was there the year after I graduated from college. Um, and I, my aunt and uncle lived in, in Midtown then, I guess, in Hell's Kitchen. And I would just uh, stay in their house, go to things that were free, like the Museum of the American Indian. Yeah. Uh, and watch RuPaul's Drag Race on their big TV, hang out with their ba- their baby, who's like two then. And my little brother came later in the, it was like for, I didn't have spring break because I wasn't in college anymore, but it was for a week or something. And my little brother came later and he stayed for four days or something. And he was like, you are just acting like you live here and you have a week off of work. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm tired. <laughs> like I do have a week off of work. I just want to hang out. So my last trip was very um, untouristy. You know, though, that's kind of like that's kind of the way I like to go to a place. To be honest, like I don't, I don't like the I don't like the touristy pressure to do special things that you can only do in a place. I kind of like the feeling of pretending to live in a place. I feel like I feel like if someone were to say to me what was said to you, I would probably I'd probably say exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, I you know just sort of pre- pretending you live there, going to a diner maybe, reading the local paper, yeah, watching um, watching whatever is on the uh, the local TV stations. I think that's appropriate. It's fun. I like it. Yeah. So this so this party is going to be at the counting room in Brooklyn, which looks quite nice, like a really nice bar. There's a we're, there's a downstairs room and there's going to be drinks, there's going to be some readings from participants. Would you like to read? Alice the the editors can read stuff too if we want. Yeah, I'll read a thing or two. And, Why not? Uh, uh and there's not going to be a DJ or anything. Like we I think it's going to be pretty simple and straightforward, but it'll be fun. So, and if people want to want to Oh, and the uh the other thing about Okie Panky is we're we're paying everyone one 
$100. This should be the main thing that we tell people. I always forget. And then I'm like, oh, by the way, $100 for everyone. How does $100 sound to you? <laughs> it sounds good. Like for a poet, when I had a poem in the hairpin, yeah. they gave me $100, which is what they pay not to be like blasting their rate everywhere, but that I think is one of their common rates for something relatively short. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I got $100 <laughs> yeah. for a poem. For a poem, that's like an unbelievably high amount of money. I got more money than that when I was in Blackbird, but I had three pieces in there. Yeah. So for a single poem, $100 is a lot. I actually think $100 is a very reasonable amount of money to pay for a piece of writing that's less than $1,500. Generally, I, I, I'm, I may be biased because I write a lot of short things um, because it's fun. And I'm always kind of surprised and delighted when somebody wants to publish one. But when someone wants to publish one and they have $100 from me, I never scoff at that. I'm always happy about it. And that, you know, and that's despite the fact that I'm, ostensibly a professional writer total agreement i mean i feel like i've gotten a bit more foofy about being paid since i've become a prose writer oh that's right even so there's no money i mean it's not like people are paying good money to be in a magazine you know no, and I my feeling is in general to just anything you think that you've written that's decent or you think other people might judge to be decent, you should just go ahead and publish it because the more stuff you have out there, the more opportunities you end up getting to make money doing other things. I like, agree. Uh, like having a, a television series made out of your poem. Right, someday. Yeah. Do you, could, yeah. Do you primarily consider yourself a prose writer now? Or you, well, are my, you, did you merely add that to your repertoire of, of things that you do? My bread and butter now is poetry, you know? I'm a professional poet right now. So, I don't know. I don't think I primarily am one or the other. Yeah. I feel equal right now, anyway. So, are you, do you feel, so you, you know, what you're referring to is you got invited to Idlewild to teach uh, and to be the poet in residence. So, you're, you are essentially being paid to be a poet. Are you, uh, did you feel some pressure to actually write poetry there? As yes. As opposed to other things? Definitely. <laughs> you- I had written very sporadic poems very sporadically over the past year. Uh, when I lived in LA, I wrote a few definitely, but it wasn't a very regular practice. Yeah. So, um, once I got up here, I was, I was like, okay, gotta actually be kind of working through some of my anxiety about poetry and trying to actually just write it, go ahead and write, sit down and write. Because I think that's some of my, with nonfiction, I have a lot of different things that I can do to work myself up to actually sitting down and write, like research and writing notes and writing outlines and stuff like that. With poetry, of course, it's not like you just sit down and write the final draft, but I have a little bit less, uh, I have more, I have fewer like things that protect me from myself when I'm writing, so been trying to just sit down and actually just write some stuff and I wrote this long thing in the past month maybe uh oh yeah you you uh this is the thing that's on SoundCloud yeah I posted because I had this reading on December 5th that was already scheduled so I was like well gotta have something ready (laughs) by December 5th so I 
read this uh, James Schuyler poem, Song, which is one of my favorites from Morning of the Poem. Yeah, I like it. And I wrote in between the lines, in between each line, I wrote wrote more than one line, but using that as my prompt, and I did that for the whole poem. And then I, I had, you know, a collection of lines that I had written, and each of those lines became a kernel of a section of this long poem or series of poems. So how did the reading go over? It was pretty good. It was incredibly stressful because they wouldn't allow me to schedule it at any time other than 7.30 p.m. on Friday. And Chris works in Los Angeles, which is on a good day, two hours from Idlewild. And he has a job. Yes, he has a job. at. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe he wants to remain, keep his anonymity at work. I you don't know. You want me to bleep that? I'll bleep that. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> uh, but he, two, I was two hours from LA on a good day, on a day when you are at Friday at 5 p.m. Yeah. It's approximately three and a half hours away. In, you know, we're in, we're in LA. It's SoCal. It's traffic. So he, I pretty much knew he wouldn't be able to get there by 7.30. And I really did nothing that I could have done to, other than ask if we could move the time. But then, so then got there at 7.30. He's not going to be there till 8, at least. So, um, but then, so Kim, who's the head of creative writing, went around to all these students and was like, do you have anything on your phone, on your computer that you could read? To stall for time <laughs> before the reading. And they were like, um, okay. And like they, they, they got up there and actually they did such a good job like bullshitting and kissing my ass. Like they were like, <laughs> Alice gave us this wonderful reading that I just loved doing. And then we had to write this poem in response to it. So here you go. Or they would be like, we just workshopped this poem today. So here goes, you know, whatever. And I was just like, oh my goodness, thank God. But so he was able to hear probably the last 10 minutes of it, right, of the good. reading. Very good. It is good. Yeah. Is he, is he, uh, is he a literary person? Mm-hmm. Well, he's, uh, he was an English major in yeah. college. He, yeah, I would say he's literary. He's a reader for sure. I, I ask because I'm I'm always curious about like who writers choose as mates, you know, <laughs> do, because because my wife is a fiction writer, and uh, you know there are certain disadvantages to that because if one of us is kind of down and not doing well, and the other is doing well, it's you know makes the one who's not doing well feel bad, and feel bad about not being able to feel good about the other one's success and so on. But for the most part, it's great because we you know we have a shared. Uh, shared life goals and uh, never get pissed off at the other one for disappearing for three or four hours. But, but I've talked to other people who say they just wouldn't other writers who said they would, they wouldn't dare ever date a writer. I would dated writers, but not poets. No, I feel like to me, that's more of a sacred thing. Poetry. Yeah. And I would, <laughs> I can tell I would, by the way you say the word poetry. Poetry. That I wouldn't want, I don't know. I feel like either, well, is my main thing, my main thought is that I wouldn't want to date a writer whose writing I considered 
worse than my own. But I yeah. also wouldn't want to date a writer whose writing I considered better than my own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I feel like that doesn't leave a lot of people out there. <laughs> no. It really doesn't. When I first met Rian uh, in Missoula, I guess we went out – we went out with my roommate Mark to go see a movie because I we had just met like with all the other MFA people right in the beginning of the first year of school, and uh, over the course of this evening, it just dawned on me that I had a huge crush on her and totally wanted to get with her. And you know, for the, we went back to her apartment to just kind of talk all night. And mm-hmm. as soon as I walked in, I'm like, all right, here's the first test. If the book she has suck. It's real. It's really going to be bad news. And it was. Yeah. And she had awesome books. <laughs> so it wasn't All until the best books. a few weeks later that we exchanged stuff because we weren't in the same workshop in those days. Uh, there were two MFA. There were two workshops going on at the same time, and I accidentally took one that had primarily undergrads in it. I don't know how loosey goosey it is at Missoula these days, but back then they Not would let that loosey goosey. They would let anybody in who pissed and moaned to the professor enough. So. Our classes were filled with um, with weird outsiders. Some of them were like precocious undergraduates, but others were like people who already had their MFA and were just lingering in town and felt like taking a workshop. And then some were just weirdos. One, there was one guy who um, applied for the fiction MFA, didn't get in. This is a guy of means. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't get in, and he moved to Missoula anyway. Bought a house and just started <laughs> going to all the events, going to all the parties, hanging out at the bars, taking the classes. He basically inserted himself into the MFA program just by showing up and being a jerk about it. That honestly more or less still happens. I mean, not with people don't buy a house, but I feel like people, they kind of have the MFA program osmosis. Because you can go to whatever you, you can go to Bernice's and... Be a writer. You can go to the yeah readings. I mean, whatever. I don't care, but it's not like I'm like no MFAs only because <laughs> that's the thing. How people how people call it the program. Yeah, and so and it sounds like we're in a rehab or yeah. in a cult. <laughs> like where it's like, oh, I need to meet some people outside of the program. Oh, she's not in the program. The program. <laughs> How do you make friends outside of the program? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, at Cornell, we're we don't, you know, no one can take the no one can take the MFA workshop except the the eight fiction students or the eight poets. Yeah, I don't think in Montana that really happens anymore. There was one exceptionally good undergrad who was in a fiction workshop in the past few years that I remember when I lived there, maybe when I was in the program. Uh, I don't eh. There may have been, there was a woman who already had her MFA from somewhere else and she was doing pre-med type post-bac stuff and she yeah. was in our workshop and she was great. She was a really good writer. Like there was nothing wrong with that. I don't know, yeah. but mostly, yeah, it's just, it's just for the program, program only. Yeah, we had, um, so, sometimes the, sometimes the outsiders were a drag, but sometimes they were really interesting. We had, um, one workshop, I think actually Ed was in this workshop because Ed 
uh, took some fiction as well as poetry because I don't know if you, he's ever let you read his fiction, but it's quite good. I took uh, a fiction workshop from Kevin Canty. Yeah, you in, like it? I don't know. He w- I feel like he just thought <laughs> I was a total idiot. He was like, <laughs> Alice. Well, he, he plumped for Okie Panky on Facebook. You got to give him that. Yeah. Maybe he'll. Uh, it's true. I hope he'll send us something. I emailed yeah. him. Me too. Put him like, on, like putting him stuff. on blast right now. But um, uh, somebody came. Somebody who had, I guess, grown up in Missoula and was visiting for the semester came and just asked to take our workshop, and then did, and it turned out to be Miley Malloy, who's now a pretty well known oh. fiction writer, and she was really nice, and uh, it was good to have her in the workshop. But I feel like that's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I remember the first night I'm to go back to the must have good books discussion i remember the first night i met chris i went this isn't normal either but um we met on the internet and then he was like oh do you want to go to a barbecue at my house and i was like aren't we supposed to meet in public you know (laughs) and like do you know what a date is but (laughs) then um but i was like well i'm bored it was a saturday afternoon and he was like, we're in the front yard. So if there, if you come and there's no one here, you can leave, you know. Uh, so I went there and like <laughs> met all of, I met his brothers and all of his best friends on our first date. So, wow. You know, got that out of the way. But Trial I went by there, fire, though. Right, right. It was actually really fun. <laughs> but uh, in his house, he had all of these poetry books. He had like Kenneth Coke, you know, like. Uh, James Merrill, like all these people. And I was like, wow, this guy is really cool, you know? (laughs) And then later he, like much later, because I told him that, and then maybe like the next day or something, he told me like, I have something to tell you. I have never read those poetry books. (laughs) My aunt worked at Knopf for 50 years or whatever, and when she died, I got... I got her books. So, but then he, that he had, then he told me that he had, he had read uh, New Addresses by Kenneth Koch that night. <laughs> after, after, after meeting you? Yeah. So that he could, you know, be more, uh, you know, live yeah. up to my expectations. That, you know what? That's really sweet. That's really Isn't sweet. Isn't it cute? <laughs> and also, and also, you know, you inherit a bunch of books you're not interested in reading from your aunt. If you really don't want to read them, you can just, you can bring them to the swap meet, you know, you can give them right. to the library sale, but he hung on to them. He, he intended yeah. eventually to read them. Yeah. Now, it's not like he had never read anything, you know, no. he's read lots of things, but most of the things that I was impressed with, he was like, I don't, that's not my book. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, it's cute. It was cute. It is. It is kind of hilarious meeting the entire family on the on the first date. Yeah, it worked. I don't know. It was fun. It was different. Yeah. It was it was a different kind of date. <laughs> do, you, do you know what a date is? <laughs> um. So so I'm but I'm curious. You know. So now you're a professional poet. This is like a a perennial topic that I both love and hate. Which is one's relationship to lit biz? Mm. Like, do you do, do you? Uh, and I've you know I have 
I, I, I often will have students who are very confident when they're, you know, when they're in the MFA program or when they're undergraduates, and then they get out into the world and just, and they realize just how messed up the, you know, the writer's relationship to the world, specifically the world of commerce, but the world of teaching, the world of work, the world of getting along with other people is. So, yeah. are you, you know, you've been, you've been out of school for what, like three years, four years, three years? Three years, almost four years. Yeah. Going on four years. I mean, you're you're a very ambitious person, Alice. It's true. You know, but I'm lazy too. So, in what I way are you lazy? You're you're productive. You write a lot. Do I? <laughs> I don't really think I do. I feel like I end up producing something. I usually have something to show for some amount of months, but. I don't know. I feel like I don't, I'm not good at working or having a job. Usually I quit. So finding this job was cool, but it's just a year, one year appointment. So it's like, now what am I going to do next? Yeah. I don't really feel, I feel like I should, I'm trying to flip the script on the way I talk to myself, but because I read this article, this is not really, this is not related exactly, but I read this article about children. It was like one of those sort of like pop psychology articles, but it was really long. I can't remember where I read it, but it was about how children who are told that they are smart or like talented end up like giving up. Oh. Where children who are told that they're like hardworking, resourceful, persistent end up you know, keep keeping going. Like they did like little tests where it was like, if they give a kid a puzzle and it's an easy puzzle and they can do it. And then they say, Oh, aren't you smart? And then they give them a slightly harder puzzle. Um, they'll be like, fuck this. Like (laughs) I can't do it. (laughs) And I'm a genius where if they give the kid a puzzle and they do it well and they're like, Oh, you really worked hard on that puzzle. And then they give them the harder puzzle. They're more likely to try harder to solve it. So which so, which of these children are you? I'm the first one, definitely. You 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 got told you were smart. Yeah, and, and then, then you give thought, up well, at any at the first it's slight. Not, difficulty. It's not what I. It's not what I do. It's what I am. So I don't have to <laughs> right. do anything. I mean, I feel like when I got into my MFA, it made me feel I sort of started telling myself more different stories about myself, like that I was. Telling myself, like, you know, I'm an ambitious person. I'm a passionate person. I'm resilient. You know, things yeah. that are less about, like, I am very special. <laughs> 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 I'm the world's biggest genius. So, but I feel like with the job market, that's what I'm trying to tell myself now. Like, I can get a job. I can work at a job. People want me to be there at the job. <laughs> the job of being a professional poet or any job any job i feel i feel bad you know i have another friend who's like um, approximately in your situation has had a couple of one one year things and is trying to go on the actual job market for poetry jobs and there's only like 10 this year yeah there are none and there aren't any there aren't they aren't really very good meanwhile there have been uh, unexpectedly more than 50 fiction jobs out of nowhere i guess everyone's you know there's been a mass exodus for whatever reason, but um, I don't Girl, know. Are dying. you are you on that are you on that market? I I'm not really. I don't really feel ready. I feel like having both 
having two genres helps. I have lots of experience working at writing centers and some like comp type experience. So I feel like I could get a job like that. Uh, you got you have clips because you know you've been you've sort of redefined yourself as a kind of cultural critic and essayist, and that's you know people are reading your stuff. Um, I think it's a boon to your more esoteric work, like your poetry specifically, but um, that you're doing something that's intelligent but also accessible and about things that people think about. You know, like I mean, it's certainly like. People bought my little poetry chapbook that you blurbed. Oh, I love that book. Would never have otherwise heard of it because it's essays. sold out now. Yeah, because of oh, the good. essays. Because and Twitter. Yeah, it's it's done. It's a hundred hundred prints, and there's no more of them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I guess someone told me they saw it in McNally Jackson in New York City. Really? So I was like, well, maybe there's still some circulating around. I don't know where my – I only have one copy left, and I don't know where it is, but yeah, Chris has one. As so well I he can, should. Some, right, I gave him one. <laughs> he really plans to get around to reading it one of these days. He read it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, twi- so Twitter uh, – has Twitter, you feel, been a, uh, you know, been, a, been a boon to your career so far? Huge, I think. Yeah. I don't think I think like I don't think I would be even close to like I like getting getting solicited for things or having I don't know even getting like yeah getting my stuff placed certain places it just helps having a having a presence. Yeah, I was kind of surprised at that because my previous experience until Twitter was that um there was too much noise on social media for anyone to really give a rat's ass. But um, Twitter seems to be different. I think people are actually paying attention to what pe- what is being said on Twitter. Because on this book tour I did last month, um, several places I met people specifically who came because I had tweeted about it. There was particularly in Spokane where I only know two people, mm-hmm. uh, Sharma and Jess Walter, and. I figured that the two of them would probably tell some people to come to the reading. So when, you know, people started showing up for me to read to them at this bookstore, this great bookstore called Annie's uh, in downtown. Spokane. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, okay. Um, they were super sweet, and it's a great store. Uh, at first, there there seemed to be nobody there. I was like, oh, shit, it's just going to be like Sharma and three of her friends, I'll, and I'll just read to them. Uh, right. But then about 30 people came, and um, – a bunch of them were people Sharma knew, but then at some point they we realized that there was this big crowd of people s- sitting over to one side who, <laughs> um, who not none of us knew personally, and so yeah. we just said, "So who are you guys?" And they're like, "Oh, <laughs> why are you here? We're from uh, we're from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> we're the Twitter people." Yeah, and then the, then we you know we went out for drinks with the Twitter people. It was great. It's like complete nice. strangers who you know read about the tour on Twitter, and that happened in a couple of places. So. I think it's I think it's uh I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I need more coffee. Yeah, Just, go for it. Uh entertain the masses for a moment. Go for it. What you whistling, John? Just a little tune. 
A, li- a tune. I was, I was making up a little tune. You told me to entertain people, so I was making That's up a true. tune. I did. Yeah. You should do what Ed uh, Ed does when we podcast, which is he he sets up the microphone and chair in the corner of the kitchen right next to the coffee. Next maker. to the coffee. Yeah. yeah. Not. Can... It would work, but my <laughs> counter is a little too high Yeah. for my chair. No, I, th- so I, I, I think I you're in a good place. Crazy. You're in a good place. See, I, I just realized you're wearing your no comment sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. Very cool. No so comment. This is what's the origin of this? Because um, I th- I think you can still get it, um, but uh, it, it I don't know a, if you can. So people have been making copies of it and putting it out there. Like there's a, there's one on Zazzle. So it's from it's a, the I'll link to it. It's the it's the Tanya Harding Team Tanya Harding 1994 pullover. Well, I will show you the one that I have, which is more a more exclusive one. It's a designer. Is it not? It is. So uh, these two, uh, well, I think it's, I know of two of the people who made it, which are the New York writers, Durga Palashi and uh, Dana Tortorini, who is one of the editors of N Plus One. They started posting on Tumblr or whatever pictures of themselves wearing this sweatshirt which is a famous sweatshirt that tanya harding wore in 1994 or whatever that says no comment right i got a photo and of that. it was when the like it was when the everything was there was a renewal of interest in tanya harding last year <laughs> at some point maybe this year because there was a good article in the believer about her and there were two documentaries made about her i guess it was a tw- 20 year you know R.I.P. Tanya Harding thing. Right. And we all were like, OMG, I remember her. Love her. So then, um, so these girls started posting, well, these women started posting pictures of themselves wearing this. And I was like, oh, I want that sweatshirt. And like, <laughs> and it was clear that they were only making them for their like very cool literati New York friends and i was yeah. like oh i live in los angeles i want this sweatshirt so bad <laughs> and then like lena dunham was wearing it and i was just yeah like, ah. and then so then and i kept tweeting at durga who i know not really directly but she worked on this recording who i wrote for for years oh yeah, yeah. so i kept tweeting at her like if Durga Palashi doesn't give me one of those sweatshirts, whatever like and finally she emailed me and was like hey we set up an etsy store it's just for this weekend yeah. Get one, you know? So I ordered one immediately. Uh but um I'll show I'll send you the link to their no, I mean, I'm I, sure you can buy them at other outlets and I spent too much money on this one, but I wanted the cool the literati yeah, one. I wanted the you cool did. one. Of course you did. That's well you branding, know what? you know? I'm gonna make I'm gonna make an exclusive uh sweatshirt that you can have one of. Uh which <laughs> of what? is the um which is so I'm reading um this is How my do book. I send you I'm gonna send you something. How do I do it? Oh, you can if you maximize I I the out. yeah. You drag it into the thing. Then there it is. Okay, let's let's take that. A look. This is the for the cool the cool version of the sweatshirt that you cannot get. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Only I have it. I, I like mean, the polka in, dot the polka dot comforter. It's lying on top of there. Yeah, that's one thing about Durga. I really recommend her Instagram. Yeah, I don't know if I think that's where it's from. Uh, she well and her writing. She's a wonderful writer, but. Yeah. She is, I think, equally good at curating a beautiful Instagram. I will show it to you. Okay. All right. Good. 
I'll go ahead and send that over too. I'll put it in the, in the notes. I will. Um, and while you're looking for it, um, so I'm reading, uh, I'm reading the Fantagraphics reissue of all the old Nancy comics from the forties, uh, Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy. And mm-hmm. they're, they're awesome. Um, they're very clever in terms of the, you know, the draftsmanship, but they're also an culturally interesting. Oh, excellent. Thank you. I'll definitely recommend the, this feed. Should I get on Instagram? Yeah, I, I'm on it, but I mostly just post. What One thing that's good about Instagram is the rate is slow. People don't post a million things on there. You can look at it and then look at it again several hours later. There's been no updates, you know? Oh, okay. So you don't feel the need to keep up with it as much. Or check it a million times a day or whatever. It's slower. I don't follow as many people on it, but I think it's also just kind of a thing that people don't – you don't post every picture you take. You post like one and you're like, look at what we're doing today or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So – and it feels a little bit more like – I don't feel as like – stupid like posting pictures of like chris on there or something being like look at my boyfriend because i feel like everyone on there is doing that so yeah it's kind of nice i don't know i haven't had mine forever it's pretty cool whatever Well, anyway her uh, instagram looks pretty good um it's cool it's beautiful so, anyway so then uh then i highly recommend the fantagraphics uh nancy comics and all nancy i have nancy as my I'll send you a picture of the the background of my computer right now. Oh, oh, please. Anyway, I'm so I'm reading through it, and there's this recurring character. I can't remember the guy's name. Every everybody has a, a silly name in Nancy, but he's this neighbor guy who occasionally is forced to um, is forced to hang out with Nancy and is anno- <laughs> annoyed by her. Secretly adores her, but is irritated by her. And every once in a while when he gets angry at her, there's a thought bubble over his head and in the thought bubble is a like a skull and crossbones, but instead of a skull it's a little Nancy <laughs> it's head. It's Nancy. <laughs> and I re- I'm going to scan that and make a silk screen of it. I I just love her. I just well, you know the Joe Brainerd Nancy paintings. I don't think I do. Oh. Let me well, they are very good. Here, I will. This is the background to my computer right now. I'll show you. It's tiled, so there's a million Nancys. Oh, um, I have seen these. I have seen these uh, Joe Brainerd Nancy paintings. Yeah, they're very like, because um, Nancy is like a real, she's like a real expression of some sort of like idiotic id, you know, that's just like whatever you want. Whatever yeah. you want to do, and it's his paintings are even more like <laughs> freaky Nancy's. The me one. Yeah. This is your desktop <laughs> image. This is good, <laughs> isn't it? So good. It's a yeah. picture. I'll describe it for our radio listeners. It is a photograph, or it's a picture of Nancy holding a telephone, an old-fashioned telephone, and. And with eating a giant, giant ice cream sundae. And then it, there's a speaking bubble above her that just says, me, in capital letters. <laughs> it's fantastic. So good. 
So good. Yeah, and there's a Nancy, the book, the first of the th there are three volumes that Fantagraphics has put out so far. The first one is called Nancy is Happy, and there's a bolt. Someone is, t you got it from Nancy's Happy. It's a, it's a Tumblr of someone who's just randomly scanning stuff from Nancy's Happy. Yeah, it's, the what's great, great thing about that Tumblr is that yeah. it's not, it isn't like, well, it doesn't feel like extreme theft to me because she's not scanning whole strips in most cases. It's mostly, usually just like choice panels yeah and sometimes they're out of context which is what makes them so so funny yeah but it it's like so you can just enjoy the little just the moment of nancy in her element yeah i that's that's what i find so wonderful about them is that pretty much every good gag in nancy isolated from context is utterly surreal <laughs> yeah you totally know? um so yeah that's one i mean our class my, I'm teaching surrealism class with high schoolers, yeah. uh, or we're reading, we read all kinds of weird shit. Like we read the real surrealist, Andre Breton, whoever we read Lorca. I made him read that meet, read his very strange essays about deep song and the Duende. Mm -hmm. We read, uh, Raymond Cano exercises in style and like uh, Lipo, people, yeah. John, bunch of John Ashbery, uh, including John Ashbery and James Schuyler's. We didn't read the whole thing, but his their weird novel, A Nest of Ninnies, that they wrote every other sentence. Ooh, I didn't know about that. Oh, you should get it. It's so good. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, we read. How, uh, did, how, did I know, how did I not know about this? Oh my god! I don't know, John. You gotta All get right. it. It's All so right. good. Will Alexander, who's a black surrealist poet who lives in Los Angeles, sort of like crazy Afrofuturism kind of stuff, cosm cosmology and like Sun Ra or something. Yeah. And I feel like, and every time we read something new, I say to them, what's, you know, what's surreal about this? Why did I have you read this? That's one of my favorite questions as a teacher. Why did I have you read this? Usually yeah. they're like, I don't know. You tell me, but <laughs> they, but, and they, and it's, they get it where they're like, you know, it's about freedom. It's about creating something new. You know, it's about, it's about weird images. And I was like, I'm like, yeah, cause surrealism is weird. I feel like it's a thing that young people really like and hold to. But more and more, I feel like with this class, I'm being like, I believe in surrealism. Not necessarily <laughs> just in being like a wacky freak all the time with your writing, but, you know, surrealism. I'm, that's why I try to em emphasize these kids is like surrealism is about, is a, was a political movement then, and it is now about rejecting authority. And it's utterly romantic, you know, the idea that we could create something new. I, I, uh, I love that notion. And I think it's a good thing to it's I think it's a it's a good thing to impregnate a teenager with you know this this uh, this idea which maybe will not be as accessible to them later. I'm sure I've told this anecdote on the podcast before, but Reen and I got invited to this uh, grad student party and went to it just assuming there'd be a bunch of professors there, but we're the only professors who showed up, or I was the only professor who showed up, and a um, formalist poet. A guy I quite like, so this is not a, this is not a shit talk of him, but it was a funny incident. 
um, as soon as he saw us, came and it was like and it was like a backyard barbecue thing, like with a campfire, you know, and and everyone was outside in the fall air in their jackets, you know, kind of standing around and smoking. And this guy saw us coming down the path, and he marched up the path to meet us and said, "Somebody told me that you guys like John Ashbery," <laughs> and we're like, Who "Yeah." Yeah, we, yeah. Well, that was the, the first shock was that that was somehow getting around that we I don't that know like, who John likes John Ashbury, John and Rian read John Ashbury, <laughs> and we said yeah we we do like John Ashbury, and he just he looked so pained and he said why? <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. He's the best. Well, you know you gotta you gotta kind of let go and get into the mindset that he must have been in while writing them and enjoy the you know enjoy the enjoy putting one idea in front of the other and but yeah, it's not it's my... not accessible to everyone naturally i think well it's a thing uh because my student we read donald barthelme yeah too in this class and my students loved him good and were like they were like my, my student parisa was like what is this book what is this? After I <laughs> read it, he showed it to me and was like, what is it? Uh, they were definitely utterly mystified, but it, they just loved it. They loved Donald Barthelme. And I remember once uh, David Gates, noted fiction writer, saying that, oh, Donald Barthelme and John Ashbery are the same. You know, they're equivalent <laughs> in prose and fiction. I mean, in poetry. And I kind of see it because it's the thing of you read it and you love it and you don't remember it and you have to read it again. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Well, it I think it's your because, brain immediately. Yeah, but the, I mean, there's something to be said for that. I can. That's a little bit fa- facile, but I think I know where he's coming from, and but basically agree with it. But I feel like something like that. It it depends on what's in your head already when you read it, and so when you read it again years later the it, you complete the you complete the puzzle with different stuff and so the image that that you get from it is different yeah does that I make mean, sense for the, for, yeah well the first time i i mean obviously for the first time but i had my students read something by me yeah which was an essay about john and ashbury's long poem the skaters because yeah. there isn't another one on the internet and i was like well you're going to have to read this by <laughs> me so sorry but uh, in it, in The Skaters, he says that – hold on. I'll find it. Yeah, he says – John Ashery writes in The Skaters, The carnivorous way of these lines is to, va- is to devour their own nature, leaving nothing but a bitter impression of absence, which as we know involves presence, but still. Which seems like a great – uh, expression of what John Ashbery poems do that they, you know, they yeah, devour yeah. themselves. Each line erases the next line. Well, I'm going to link to this. We should, we should wrap up the podcast. We're getting on in time, but this is a, this will be in the notes. Do you want to, you want me to put your essay on it in the notes too? You want to send me the link? Sure. Yeah, I'll link to, I'll link to that. I'll link to that. It's like I'll drink to that. Maybe yeah. that should be the name of a podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'll put it on the list. I have a I have a list of names. I'll link to that. I'll link to that. 
Yeah, that's so too, that's I'm finding that too funny. All right, so um, let's let's bust this thing up. I will uh, I will definitely talk to you on January eighth, if not. That's sooner. right. I'm looking okay, forward John. to it. So, and all you listeners who are in the New York area, uh, but you know, save the date, January eighth. January eighth, come to our party. Are you hungry for lunch? Well, then let's have lunch. Do you want some lunch? Well, then we'll give you some lunch. Do you have a hankering for lunch? Well, then come to lunch. Cause it's time for lunch. Box with Ed and John. That's right. It's time for lunch. Box with Ed and John.